Everyone, my name is Paul Owens, also known as Owie. If you've got uh, 1 Corinthians 5 open in front of you, that's going to be really helpful as we go through. Uh, we are going to be talking about some stuff that uh, may be difficult to hear. We're talking about sexual immorality and church discipline. So some of this is not particularly easy, uh, but we are people who ought to be sitting under God's word, which is powerful and active and life-giving and life-saving, and yet sometimes tricky but we ought to be sitting under the authority of it. That ought to be the case tonight. Uh, So as we attempt to do this, uh, we recognise that God is good, his word is good, and we ought to understand it, we need to understand it, so we should bring all of this to our great God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us tonight who are concerned about these things that we're speaking of, may you bring them particular comfort. May we all hear you speak. Give us the strength to sit under the authority of your word and to live our lives in obedience to it so that we might live for your glory. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord, our King, our Leader, our Saviour. Amen. We live in a world that is full of judges. Judges spend their time deciding and determining on the actions of others and then they respond accordingly. That's what they do. That's their role. They determine what people have done and they respond according to what people have done. I wonder how much you might expect that you would be judging those around you. How much do you expect that you might be judged by those around you? If I was to give you a scale of 1 to 10, and 1 was the expectation that you would never judge anyone about anything under any circumstances, and 10 was the position where you thought you would judge everyone all the time about anything anyone had done, what number would you pick? I suspect most of us would be somewhere down the lower end of the scale in the very low numbers expecting that we ought almost never to sit in judgment over anyone else's actions. As we look at 1 Corinthians 5 and open this passage up, we're looking at the circumstances in which the church and the members of the church ought to sit in judgment. And there are circumstances where Christians ought to be acting in response to other people's actions for very good reasons. How much would you expect that you might sit in judgment over other people's actions? We're going to frame the issue because Paul frames it for us right at the start of 1 Corinthians 5 in verse 1. So let me pick up verse 1 for you. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. See the situation the Corinthians are in? There is one man amongst the church who is involved in sexual immorality. It's a relationship that he has with his father's wife. It's almost certainly not the man's mother because Paul could have said that really clearly. It looks like it's his stepmother and it ought not to be happening. There's a couple of reasons why it shouldn't be happening. Uh, Firstly, in the Old Testament, it's condemned. If you're a note taker, write down Leviticus 20 verse 11. It's specifically called out this particular relationship and condemned, that's one reason why it shouldn't be happening. The other reason is that even the pagans don't do it. So Roman law itself prohibited this. 
It's a gross sexual sin that is happening within the church of Corinth. That's the framework. That's the scene that Paul has set for us. And how and uh, sorry. And now he talks about how they ought to respond. Have a look with me at verse two. He says, "And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this?" Now flick down to the end of the chapter, verse 13. He goes on to describe how they should respond. God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. See what Paul says? As a result of this man and his actions, he is to be kicked out of the church. That much is really clear in 1 Corinthians 5. And lastly, let's have a look at verse 4 4 and 5. This is where it gets a little bit tricky, but he's going to expand on how they should respond. Verse 4 and 5. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Wow. That sounds extreme, doesn't it? Hand this man over to Satan. Now, really, what Paul is saying is simply a a spiritual description of what he said elsewhere in the chapter of putting the man out of the church. And so he describes it as handing the man over to Satan to kick him out of church. Now, friends, the Bible is incredibly black and white about people's spiritual status. You're either trusting in Jesus and so you are in God's kingdom, therefore you're in the church, and you're in the light, and you are saved. That's one option for where you're at spiritually. The other option is to say that you are outside of Jesus, not putting your trust in him, and therefore you are outside of the church, you are in the darkness and unsaved, and consequently in Satan's kingdom, under Satan's rule. It's very black and white. You're in one of two boxes. And Paul says if you are to kick this man out of the church... That means that you have put him into the realm of Satan, the kingdom of Satan. You have handed him over to Satan. And that's what they ought to be doing. They're to put the man out of the church. But can you see it's for a purpose? There's a reason why they are to cast him out of the church. Have a look again at verse 4 and 5. I'm going to read the whole thing. He says, So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present... Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan. Now, here's the purpose. Here's the why. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. See the reason? The man is kicked out of church for the destruction of the flesh and so that his spirit may be saved on the day Jesus returns in judgment. So the overarching plan of this discipline that happens within the church is that this man who is currently not saved, not at peace with God, might actually be saved on the day that Jesus returns in judgment. Now, there's no certainty that will happen. That's why Paul uses the word may. It might be that this man sees the error of his ways, turns to Jesus again in faith and repentance, and therefore is saved. But that's the purpose in disciplining this man. Not to just make a public spectacle of him, but actually hope that he would turn back to Jesus in trust and be made right with God again. 
Now, let me give you a quick clarifier. Paul uses a funny phrase in here, the destruction of the flesh, in verse 5. They're to hand a man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I just want to point out, that doesn't mean that we would take someone out of the hall here and flog them for a particular sin. There's nothing that we're going to do physically to discipline someone. But time and again, Paul uses the phrase flesh in the Bible to describe the sinful nature. So the flesh and the sinful nature are paired together. And here he describes the purpose of putting this man out of the church is so that there might be a destruction of the flesh or the sinful nature. There might be repentance. That's what he's calling for. And as a result of that, he might be restored to the church. Now, let me just speak to another caution as well. Because he says there's a destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved, we can often think that perhaps the body that we have is something that's going to be discarded and done away with when it comes to entering into heaven. Perhaps we ought to not worry about our bodies because God is just going to raise our spirits and so therefore we ought not to worry about our bodies at all. And when I was a kid, there was a a TV ad, the Philadelphia cream cheese ad, that depicted that. Uh, Philadelphia cream cheese was supposed to be heavenly and so people floated around on the clouds and it gave the impression that heaven wasn't for people who could walk and touch and breathe. It was for spiritual beings that floated around on the clouds. But actually the Bible is super clear that we hope in a resurrection that is bodily, in a new body that is fit for the purpose of eternity, but a body which should give you some hope that you know a bit about what it might be like. There will still be a bodily resurrection that we have fit for the purpose of eternity. Paul gives a whole chapter to this in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to read up on it later, you'll see his big defence that there is a body in heaven. And we have that to look forward to. 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about spirit, soul and body being blameless at the return of Jesus. So there's no separation between our bodies and our spirits. Paul knows that. What he's talking about in verse 5 is just that there would be a dealing with the sinful nature, a putting to death this man's grievous sin, a turning to Jesus again in repentance and trust so that he might be saved. So that's our first reason why the man ought to be under church discipline, why the man ought to be kicked out of the church, that he might be saved when Jesus returns. Now, secondly, there's also the fact in verse 1 that the world looks on at this particular sin within the church in Corinth and they're disgusted. See, even the pagans, which is just another way of describing people outside the church, even the pagans in Corinth are appalled at this man's actions. So the fact that the world looks on in disgust means that the church's witness to the gospel is severely damaged amongst Corinth. Can you imagine the community of Corinth seeing the church and wanting to hear them talk about their gospel, their good news, when they live in a way that the rest of Corinth is appalled by? They're not even going to stop to listen. So Paul is concerned that that would be an impact of having this man within the church going about this sinful way of living, this unrepentant sinful way of living. But there's a third reason that comes up in this chapter and I think it's the most important. Paul gives the most time to it and the most defence of why they ought to kick him out for this particular reason. It starts in verse 6 to verse 8. So have a look with me, verse 6 to 8. He says, Your boasting is not good. 
Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul picks up this image of the Passover. And the Passover itself was a celebration of God's mighty saving work to take his people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and put them into the promised land. And the Passover festival they celebrated every single year. It reminded them of God's mighty saving work and of how they ought to live in response in obedience to the God who'd already saved them. And every year as they celebrated Passover, right at the start, they had to put out of their homes all of the yeast to remind them that yeast had no part amongst them. It reminded them again of God's saving work. When he said to them they had to make unleavened bread, they didn't have time to wait for it to rise. They were in a rush to get out of Egypt. And so they were to put the yeast out and remember God's mighty saving work. At that time, they were in a rush to prepare to get ready to leave Egypt. And Paul uses this Passover example to say this man being present in the church is like the yeast that can infect anything in your home. This one man can have a very negative effect on the entire church. And yet these people are to be the... They are to be the people God has already declared them to be. Not sitting comfortably in persistent, unrepentant sin, but be the godly and holy people that God has declared them to be. Be the people who are washed, sanctified, justified by the blood of Jesus. And this man ought to have no part in the community of the church. Remember remember that Paul says this man claims to be a Christian. But it's clear in the context that he's not. And the big problem for the Corinthian church is that if they persist with this being this man being present and people follow his example, they too might think that they are Christians, think that they're saved and right with God when they aren't. That is a massive problem, friends. Of all the things that a church could do for you, of all the things that we want to do for you, if you are here today and you think you are a Christian but you are not, then the most loving thing we can do for you is to point out that you are not. Because you and I are all going to face Jesus as judge. And we ought to be prepared to receive him as saviour and not to see him as judge over us. So we want to make very certain that we are very clear on who is in the kingdom of God and who is out. We want to be very clear on the judgment of who makes it in to God's kingdom and who is left out. Uh, My wife Jen and I have got four kids. Two of them have recently left home, so we've gone from four uh, young people in the house with us to only two. It's okay. We're just starting to get therapy now and starting to get over everything. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to have kids. It's quite a sad thing when they leave the nest. Uh, they both left recently. One of them last night went to a show in Sydney. Uh, she went to Frozen, Maddie. Had a great time. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. 
turns up with a ticket and she is allowed in because her ticket is valid. Imagine if you were preparing to go to some event that you longed to go for. You turned up with your ticket in hand and it wasn't valid. You were not allowed in. That would be sad, wouldn't it? Friends, it would be so much worse if you turned up to the judgment seat of God and you were not allowed in. So we ought to be very clear on who is allowed in and who is not allowed in because it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the man that we are talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 is out and the church needs to let him know that he is out. Let me just read chapter 6. If, you're, if you've got a physical book, they're wonderful things to have. Your phones are great for calling people or doing all sorts of other things, but an actual Bible with paper, terrific thing to have. Bring it next week. Otherwise, chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says this, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a list, isn't it? See what the Bible says? People who do these things, they're out. They are out. Now, there is a huge mistake we could make here on this. And I want to be really clear on this as well. The mistake is to think that if we do certain things, we will be made right with God because we've done those certain things. Friends, we cannot be saved because we avoid sexual immorality. We can't be saved because we've avoided greed or ripping people off. Because we could never, ever be good enough. We are only ever saved by Jesus and by his perfect life, his death and his resurrection. And we receive all of the benefits of Jesus' saving work entirely by faith alone. But that saving faith is never, ever alone. It's always accompanied by repentance. And repentance is just turning away from sin. And it always goes together with saving faith. And repentance is not sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that Christians are only those people who never, ever sin. There's only ever been one of them, and he's king of the universe. All of us fit in the category of sinners who need a saviour on the day we're saved and on the day we die and on every day in between. We're not talking about sinless perfection. But saving faith always means there will be repentance. If we truly put our trust in Jesus as the only hope that we have of being made right with God, then that trust in the person and work of Jesus will always work itself out in growing godliness, in putting off the deeds of the flesh. And can you see the example of this man? He hasn't actually put off this serious sexual sin. He hasn't even started to try. He sits in it and the church is proud and there is no sign of repentance. So imagine what would happen if other people within the Corinthian church would start to follow this man's example. They fall into sin thinking that they're somehow still going to be okay with God without saving faith, without repentance. And then that view infects the whole church. People who think they are right with God, but in reality they've taken the very wide and very easy path to hell. Friends, what a tragedy. The church desperately needs to speak up. 
I want to show you the, an image of a coin. And for you guys especially, you probably need to be reminded what these things look like. I reckon if we shook everyone down at the door on the way out tonight, we probably wouldn't get a coin. After the year we had last year, we've given up on these. We just pay by card or phone and the world has dramatically moved on. But you know what happens with every coin we've got? We've got the Queen's head on one side and an Australian native animal on the other side. That's what you get every coin you've got. They have the Queen's head and an animal. That's our coins. There are two sides to every one of our coins. Friends, saving faith is exactly the same. If you put your trust in Jesus, it is always accompanied by repentance, turning away from sin. Personal faith in the work of Jesus means there will be a turning away from sin and a grieving at sin. Friends, we are not saved by our repentance. We're saved by Jesus alone, accessed by faith alone. But we need to be very clear what that faith looks like. So we need to remember the order of the salvation. We need to remember what happens when, as God saves. Recently, Jen and I, our eldest, Ellie, had a 21st birthday. And we took the family out for a birthday party at a local restaurant. We just had dinner together at a very nice restaurant. You know what happens when you get a nice restaurant? You have a menu. It has entree, main, dessert. Starters, main, dessert. Classy restaurant. You've got all the options. And you're guided into how you ought to order. You want to get the order right because that's what the chef expects you to eat. You start with the start and you end with the dessert and all the good stuff that comes in between. That's exactly what should happen when you're at that classy restaurant. You want to get the order right when you're at the restaurant. Friends, it is so much more important to get the order right in regard to salvation. If we get the order wrong, we stand before God as our judge with no hope. So let me say firstly what the wrong order is. Here's the wrong thinking that we need to make sure we always avoid. It's this, if I repent, then God will be pleased with me and save me. If we think like that, we have messed the order up and things will not go well. Here is the right order. God has saved me in Jesus. Everything I could never do for myself, Jesus has done. He has lived the perfect life that I can never live. He has paid the price for my sins that I desperately do not want to pay at his death in the cross. He's been raised to life again to be justified and vindicated before God. So now, because God has saved me in the person and work of Jesus, in thankfulness for that mighty saving work, I want to live in obedience to the God who saves. In thankfulness for his incredible mercy towards me. Friends, make sure that you get the order of salvation right. God saves. We respond in thankful obedience. Now let's take just a little sidestep down a sidetrack because I think this is going to be important for us to do. I just want to tell you that it is very specific circumstances that Paul is speaking to in 1 Corinthians 5. This man who is to be put out of the church is a man who is deliberately engaging in a gross sexual sin that he is unrepentant of. Now I could ask for all of us who know that we are sexually immoral before God to stand up. Please don't do that. Don't stand up. 
But if I was to ask for all of us who know that we are sexually immoral to stand up, then it ought to be that every single one of us stands up in this hall. And I would only ever ask that question if I was standing up and beat you to it because I know that I am a sexually immoral man before God. Now, many of you tonight might well give a nod to that. You recognise your own standing before God in this particular area. You know what your thoughts are. You know what your actions have been. You know what your search history is on a computer. You know what you've done with people. And you recognise that you're a broken sexual sinner. Friends, if that is you, then forgiveness is readily available for you. You put your trust in the Lord Jesus and there is a God in the universe who is willing to welcome you with open arms into relationship with him. Hold on to Jesus. It's the only hope you've got. Friends, some of you here tonight might not yet be fully convinced that you're a sexual sinner before God. I just want to remind you of Jesus' words. He said that if you look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery in your heart. Sexual sin is not just what you search for, what you do with someone. It is what is happening in your thought life. And that means that all of us fit in that category. All of us, every single member of our church, fits the category of a sinner who needs a saviour. And our God has graciously saved. Friends, none of us meet God's standard for holiness and perfection in our lives. But forgiveness is available and freely given by God to anyone who turns to Jesus in trust and cries out for mercy. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you recognise your brokenness and your need for a saviour and God's generous gift of mercy. And perhaps tonight you need to turn to him and ask for forgiveness. So how ought we to respond to 1 Corinthians 5? How do we sit under the authority of God's word in this chapter? Two things we need to do. Firstly, we need to take our own sin very seriously. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved, we need to take our sin seriously and honour the God who has saved us. But we also need to take the sin of others in the church around us seriously too to be concerned for their status before a God who is holy and perfect and generous and merciful to anyone who turns to Jesus. So we ought to care for those amongst us and care for their spiritual status before God. I want to give you a hypothetical. You learn that there is someone in a house down your street. That person you know is married. They live with their spouse they're carrying on an affair, they have a sexual relationship with someone who is not their spouse. I want to ask you the question, do you knock on their door and point out that they really shouldn't be doing this? Now, if you go back to the start of the night, we all picked a number between 1 and 10. If you're down at 1, 2 and 3, you're desperately wanting to say no way in the world, don't you? I'm not knocking on that door. I'm not drawing attention to their particular sins. If they're not a Christian, the answer is no. The church's job is not to call the world to churches, the church's moral standard to Christian values. So if the person in the house down the road is not a Christian, 
We're going to leave them be. We want to present the gospel to them so they have a hope of salvation. We want to present Jesus. But we're not going to go around as the moral policeman saying, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, you shouldn't do that. We won't be the judge of the world. So look at verse 12. What business is is it of mine to judge those outside the church? The answer is, it's none of our business. Verse 13, Paul gives the answer, God will judge those outside. We leave that judgment to God. Now let's change the situation around. The person in the house who is married and you know is having a sexual relationship with someone who is not their partner, not their spouse, and they are a member of church, they claim to be a Christian right here with you, will you knock on the door and point out that they really shouldn't be doing this? What's the answer? Well, it may not be you specifically, but someone needs to knock on the door because we have to love this person. We have to show them that the way of faith is the way of repentance, that it is not okay to sit in unrepentant, serious sin and rest into God's mercy when God's word is so clear on how we ought to respond, how that person ought to respond. Friends, we're to take our Christian brothers and sisters' sin very seriously. Because unrepentant, serious sin is an indication that someone is not saved and that ought to grieve us. Sin that we are proud of and boast about is an indication that we're outside of God's grace. So in those circumstances, there is nothing to look forward to but God's coming judgment. So what do we do? We love our unrepentant friends who might claim to be Christians but aren't and therefore we call them to repent and put their trust in Jesus so that they may be saved because there's still time. And as we do that, we make it very clear that they have no part in God's church so that they know very clearly how it is that God saves. So we're not just worried about them, but we're concerned for the whole church as well so that no one else among us would make the error of thinking that since God has already saved, we can live pleasing all of our sinful desires without consequence. Friends, there are two sides to the coin and two sides in Christian life that we need to see. Faith in Jesus and repentance, a growing godliness and turning away from sin. Let's pray. Father God, help us to sit under the authority of your word, to hear you speak and to obey in response. Help us to take sin seriously, our own sin and those of the rest of us in church around us, not in order that we would seek to be saved through our own personal righteousness, but because we are saved through the work of Jesus and Jesus alone, help us to respond to the wonderful news of the gospel in a thankfulness and a growing godliness. Amen.